Welcome to the SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Raymond Evans, and this is my co-host, Michael Fairweather. We're here to provide you with the cybersecurity news that matters to help you in the cyber realm. We are proud members of the Pod Bros Podcast Network. Check them out at podbros.com. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 17. Michael and I this week are joined by Ben Miller. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Ben Miller is a security professional out at Parameter Security. So I was brought on to Parameter as a ethical hacker and trainer and HIPAA expert. I've branched out into forensics, malware analysis, speaking at conferences, and project management. So it's I do a lot of different things and really enjoy when I get to just pop a shell and investigate a network instead. Sounds like he's going to have some good insight into the topics that we're covering this week. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, this week I have new versions of Karabanak banking malware seen hitting targets in the U.S. and Europe, and Microsoft Word Intruder revealed inside a malware construction kit. What do you have for us, Michael? Uh, This week I've got new malware breaks impenetrable corporate defenses, strikes first in the Philippines. And watch out, new parents. Internet-connected baby monitors are easy to hack. Those Internet of Things will get you. They will, every time. Right on. Let's get started with this week's first story, all about malware-breaking impenetrable corporate defenses. Why don't you tell us about that, Michael? So an antivirus firm has uncovered a new strain of malware that can break through highly secure enterprise networks. It's actually capable of getting past sandbox-based gateway appliances. Um, you know, companies like FireEye and Fortinet um, actually sell these, and it's able to land in unsuspecting email inboxes. So the security firm Quickheal Technologies actually discovered it, and it's set to kickstart kind of a cat and mouse game between appliance vendors and malware markets. Basically, boils down to it's actually really bad for companies um, that are using these appliances solely to secure their networks. This stuff can run up to you know five hundred thousand um, dollars, and had been impenetrable up until now, up until they found this um, you know this exploit for it. That's a that's a hefty price tag for something to break like that, and for these companies to have to go out and buy brand new solutions, you would think that there'd be something in their contract uh, that would stipulate, in the event of total catastrophic failure on our part, we will refund you or something like that. You know, that's a pretty hefty price tag there to be putting, you know, all your faith in something that is just ultimately going to fail on you. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, there's never that magic bullet that's going to fix everything. And when you trust something like that, you know, try to use it as a panacea, you're gonna have a bad day. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's funny you say that. That's I mean, that's what they were calling it. You know, the these systems were the magic bullet. You know, by sandboxing, there's no way that it can be broken out of. There's no way we're getting past that, which obviously is now not the case. Um, they always try and use magic bullet. It's sad. 
but it chops nuts. Basically, these systems, I mean, they, they you know, running different virtual uh, machines, VMs, a um, bunch of different browsers, operating systems, and configurations. And, and even with all of that, you know, the, this malware is bypassing. It, it basically figured out that it's in a VM, and it's getting around that and getting into the inboxes. Yeah, this is why we uh, this is why we talk about defense in depth so much. You know, having this quote unquote magic bullet that's gonna you know do everything that you need and save your company isn't gonna actually do what you think it's gonna do. Defense in depth is what is ultimately gonna save you in any kind of environment whatsoever. Because if you have that that one step that they break. Like, like is happening here. A lot of companies may have been relying on just that one, that one piece of enterprise level, you know, device or service, and it failed, and now the company is completely screwed. But if they had a defense in depth set up, the attackers may have been able to get through the one layer, but once they hit those other layers, you know, uh, IDSs and IPSs that are added onto the system, then those red flags can get thrown up even earlier and really save your company or your organization. And you mentioned a good point there. It's not just about preventing something from hitting your network. It's about preventing what you can, detecting what you can't, remediating and controlling and containing the damage of whatever still makes it through. And I think the thing that doesn't get pushed near enough, uh, I try to push that in our classes, is that detection capability. Something came through the inbox or got through the magic blinky light device, and because of that, we were able to still detect, oh, hey, users are doing something they're not usually doing, or there's an additional program running on this system that it shouldn't be. And being able to detect and respond to those things in a timely manner is what sets apart the people you read about on Forbes and other websites that they got hacked and the ones you never hear about. Yeah, that's the difference between Sony and Google. Mm-hmm. Sony was not relying on the blinky light thing. No, they wouldn't buy the blinky light thing, so they didn't even know that somebody was touching their network. That's another problem with these companies is that they aren't willing to spend the money to create a defense in depth. It's it's hard for a company to be secure when they're not willing to put the money into securing themselves. It has to come from the top down. There has to be a data owner, a business owner, who says this is important to us as a business, we're going to invest not just the money, but the time, uh, the blessing for enforcement. All of those things have to be in place. And like you said, Sony, A, didn't spend any money. B, didn't have anybody at the top to make that happen. And then they, C, just really didn't seem to care. Yeah. If you don't put in that effort to care, then you're just setting yourself up to fail. This malware uh, is, is is known as apt tech qh tech. 4AG15. Um, I'm really disappointed with that name. It's not like Heartbleed or... We, I mean, we've talked about this the last two weeks. It's got to have a snazzy name or nobody's going to care. Uh, I don't think it's hit enough people for it to have a snazzy name yet. There's a certain amount of traction they have to gain. That's true. I, it, so far, it's only been picked up in the Philippines, but that doesn't mean it can't go in the re- towards the rest of the world. Okay, we're going to call it Philobox. Philobox. <laughs> That's right. Sidef just just coined that term, Philobox. The logo. 
Because it's from the Philippines, and it breaks the sandbox. It's the Philobox. Philobox. <laughs> yeah, so this malware is, is actually targeting local uh, financial institutions. But Karani, the director at QuickHeal, warned that all sandbox-based gateway appliances are actually affected by this. The CTO at QuickHill said our initial findings have taught us that even the most advanced sandbox-based appliance protection can be breached. As a result, enterprises need to consider and implement multiple layers of protection to safeguard their networks. And as we were saying earlier in the episode, that all ties into defense in depth. Yeah. Th- there is no magic bullet. The nitty-gritty of the things is there is no magic bullet. Not one thing is going to you know, secure your network or fix it or do anything like that. I mean, you're going to need multiple layers of protection. You're going to need to make sure that your people are actually trained on those things, at least to a point. They need to understand what they're doing because the social engineering aspect is there as well, not just with – you know, not necessarily with this, but when it comes to securing your network. The way I teach the hackers that we train is you do everything you can on the network side – uh, after you've done your footprinting and whatnot. But the way you're really going to get a foothold and determine the security posture of your target is going to be through social engineering and how long does that connection stay alive. If you can create a connection, it stays there for a while and nobody seems to notice, then you can start to actually play. And it sounds like this is just a piece of getting that puzzle so that you can get that initial connection and then start to move laterally within the network and that's you know, the piece that people seem to forget. A lot of times with forensic cases that I've handled that are not this malware, but malware like this that breaks a layer of defense, the bad part wasn't so much that you know they got in. It's that they were in for a long time, and you don't know how long because of other bad practices, like you're not keeping your logs, your users don't report things to the help desk, or you don't have a policy for dealing with uh, an incident response policy for dealing with this kind of trouble beyond, oh, crap, the firewall was supposed to catch this. The blinky light device was supposed to save me. Curse your blinky light device. All hail the blinky light devices. Yeah, this is just one one new way of doing this. I remember talks about you know breaking sandboxes and using some of the sandbox technology to trick other types of malware so that they wouldn't run because they assume they're being uh, monitored because they're in either a sandbox environment or a VM-type environment. So Karani had a really good point. The reason why these appliances have been secure until now is because malware makers weren't targeting them. Instead, developers focused on attacking traditional servers and PCs bypassing regular antivirus software. It's kind of like the Mac versus PC-type effect. They've been secure because they haven't been a target. No, they're secure. (laughs) Ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Especially in sales area. So yeah, defense in depth. Don't rely on your magic bullet. Although it chops really well, (laughs) you got to get yourself a blender. You need a food processor as well. There we go. Because sometimes, you know... Multiple layers there. That's what you're doing, multiple layers. You need a juicer. You need your mixer. We're going to interrupt this podcast here for a second to talk about our newest sponsors we have. You've got firewalls, intrusion detection and prevention systems, and up-to-date antivirus. You think nothing can penetrate your network, but you've forgotten about something. You forgot about your users. What can you do to help prevent that single point of failure? Training. 
That's what. And Cyberary is here to help. Tell them about it, Ryan. Cyberary, as you know, is the world's largest online cybersecurity training environment. And recently, we just rolled out an end-user security awareness training course. This training course is going to help you, the cybersecurity professionals out there, secure the largest vulnerability within your organization, which, as we know, is the end users. So check out Cyberary's end user security awareness training course. That's right. Cyberary is going to educate your users to help you eliminate that failure point. Check it out at cyberary.it. So speaking of malware, earlier this year, there was something that happened pretty big in the news. The Carbonac gang, as they were called, stole a billion dollars from various banks. Altogether, they hit multiple banks and altogether stole a billion dollars. And they had done this using a pretty sophisticated piece of phishing malware. And then once they got into the network, they just waited, bid their time and just monitored everything that the company was doing. And all the transactions that were performed were made to look like they were legitimate transactions they followed the daily schedule of the bank, so you know they weren't performing transactions at midnight when nobody would be there. They did it all on regular operating hours. You know they performed them during big rushes inside the bank and stuff like that. So the the guys used the persistence to their benefit. It wasn't a smash and grab whatsoever. They were playing the long con very well. Kudos to them. You can still appreciate the the professionalism and the tactics of the adversary. You can give them respect for that even while hating the fact that they're pulling off crimes. Yeah. Exactly. Bad news for people, though. A new variant of the Trojan has surfaced in Europe and the United States. And another bad thing now is that the malware now has its own proprietary communications protocol. Yeah, I was really impressed to see this. I, I liked the white paper. It's not one of the the bigger ones I've seen about how the malware is working, but this Trojan has some very slick capability, and I always want to remind people, your your antivirus, your anti-malware, your IDSs, your IPSs, all of those signature-based systems have the deductive capability of Elmer Fudd from back in the, the Warner Brothers cartoons days. If Bugs Bunny dresses up as a girl it looks like something new, and so it doesn't match the signatures. And, and all of your, again, your protections, your magic bullets, your, your blinky light devices, they're not going to catch everything, and it's extremely easy to create these variants just by changing variable names in the, the Trojan itself. It's very easy to change these things that are keyed into to make that signature of this type of malware. This malware is especially hard for users to identify just by sight as well due to the fact that the directory and file name in which it installs itself are both static. So they, they already exist. And then it runs as an SVC host. Yep. And, you know, you, look, you, you pop open your task manager and you look at your processes and you're going to see a multitude of SVC hosts. And they're, they're all processes that are, you know, part of the OS doing some kind of function that's needed for the OS to run most of the times. See, that's why I always do a hard shutdown of svchost.exe files that are running in the background. I mean, my computer always crashes afterwards, but... <laughs> I wouldn't way, recommend no that. malware is running. <laughs> Don't do that. 
So yeah, not not only do they now have their own proprietary communication protocol, but they're also installing themselves and making themselves look legitimate as well. So they're, they're stepping up their sophistication there a lot. A good way to try to catch them, though, in this event is the fact that two plugins are downloaded during the time that the program is running, and that's wi.exe and klgconfig.plug, and they're done over 443. If you know you're not infected yet, and you want to be able to, to catch this kind of infection or um, prevent the infection from going further because it needs these plugins to run. Create a, a firewall rule. You know, if you have a snort or something like that in line with your network, create a, a simple firewall rule for any content with those two file names and just drop them from coming into your network. And next week we'll give the update for um, what they're called next week. So for now, you can block those two files if you have a firewall program you know, in line on your network. So it's one way of uh, protecting yourself. Well, I like what they say here, one of the researchers or the director beyond the research. This is extremely targeted. This isn't something like the direwolf uh, Trojan outbreak that happened earlier this year where it was just kind of being thrown out and see what you can get and make it work for wherever, this seems to be what I would consider the right kind of elegant malware. And, you know, my friends and, and non-hacker techie friends hate it when I say that, when I start talking about how beautiful it is and elegant it is. But it's, it's the way things should be done by the bad guys if they want to not get caught. You keep it small, you limit the amount of targets that are going to be able to even submit binaries or, or, or problems so that the signature is always a best guess. And, you know, if you're looking at an enterprise that's trying to keep track of hundreds of thousands of systems all doing outbound communication, people checking their ESPN, people doing actual work, it's really hard to see, oh, this piece of SSL traffic is actually going somewhere malicious. And to do that kind of monitoring in a acceptable forensic incident and in real time or even in a timeline is really, really rough. So I, I like that they're showing that this kind of thing can be targeted and get away with a lot of you know money stealing or, or get away with whatever the bad guys want by virtue of being more specifically targeted. Another reason why these bad guys are able to get away with so much that they get away with is the fact that, and this this is one of the key reasons why they got away with so much last time, was the fact that the banks didn't want to report their loss. So the attackers have that on their side, that they are attacking organizations that don't want to look bad, so they just bite the loss. And they're able to operate for longer periods of time, which is dangerous. It's a it's a really really dangerous thing because then they get more sophisticated and they get better essentially at what they're doing, and they're able to to spread their process further out and hit more organizations with that. Yeah, Rafael Mudge does a really good set of talks on that more advanced adversary simulation. And it's something that we've talked about at the office about how do you, you know, what's the level of security maturity you need to have in your program, uh, your overall information security program, 
to be able to respond to these things. And sadly, a lot of the clients that, that we've worked with and that other people in the industry have worked with, they just don't have either the capability, the understanding, the money, the manpower, what have you, to respond to this kind of threat. And the bad thing is we don't know how bad, how many threats like this might be out there, A, because people won't report like you were saying, and B, we just don't know. We don't have the detection capability. It's one of those things. I tell people there's really three inventories you need to have. You need to have an inventory of hardware, and when something new gets put on your network, you need to know about it. You need to have an inventory of software, what's approved and running on your network, so that if somebody downloads something that they're not supposed to and it starts running on a system, you have a baseline to compare against. And then number three, you need to have good network traffic baselines so that you can say, this is what my traffic generally looks like day in and day out. What's that over there? That looks bad. And you find the Bugs Bunny in the dress. Waskily Wabbit. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm going to use that example so much now. I, I can't take full credit for that. That one is my boss, Dave Chronister's. That's his go-to analogy, and I have shamelessly stolen it and used it everywhere. Oh, well, we're going to shamelessly steal it now. And, and uh, His gift to the world. Thank you, Ben, by virtue of Dave. Right on. <laughs> well, malware is becoming more sophisticated, and... Uh, not only is it becoming more sophisticated, but it's also becoming easier for individuals to get their hands on without even really needing knowledge of how to develop malware thanks to uh, a couple of small groups of individuals who are custom creating malware for people. And that brings us to our next story. Microsoft Word Intruder Revealed Inside a Malware Construction Kit. So there's two types of malware. There's the malware that hits everybody, gets blasted out there, stuff like CryptoLocker and other ransomware that, you know, is hitting our Android devices or hitting home computers and scaring you into paying them money to unlock your uh, encrypted data, which you're not even guaranteed to get decrypted. And then there's the targeted malware, like the Carbonac malware. You know, it's strategic. It's out there to hit specific targets, and that's it. But there's... Uh, a middle ground that's been popping up. Some cyber crooks are uh, adopting a more subtle approach. And Sophos Lab researcher Gabor Zizap... I'm shorten his name later in the article. He, they call him Zappy. Let's just go with that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, a Sophos Lab's researcher, Zappy, uh, published a paper looking into this phenomenon. And the paper is called Microsoft Word Intruder Revealed. And it, it digs into a different facet of cybercrime, and that's the malware construction kit. We've seen this in the news recently a whole bunch, these construction kits popping up. We've posted it on our, our, our website a couple times. And what this construction kit does is it focuses on sneaking malware onto your computer using booby-trapped Word files rather than using some kind of links for you to click on. So looks less suspicious, you know, hey, hey, here, here's a simple Word file, open it up and read it, you know, versus click this link where I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, this this type of construction kit is actually one of my very favorite things uh, to, to both study and uh, attempt to create my own. They look horrible compared to the, the well-known ones out there, but it's not a new concept. Uh, there's one that I've actually been using for training purposes for years now called Dark Comet. 
And so all of my you know, former students are really familiar with this construction kit idea of all I have to do is set my variables. It makes the, the executable or the Word document that has an embedded macro or whatever, and it does all the hard work whereas I can focus on the, the social engineering aspect, making it look right, finalizing it, and uh, fine-tuning it to hit the target that we have. They've been around a long time, and the only way you end up catching these is those repeatable steps in the construction kit. Usually, they use a template, uh, or they use some other repeatable variable that you use to key onto as the signature for detecting these later down the road. So these kind of things aren't new. This is just a one of the many, many, many variants. And I actually really like what Zappy was saying about you don't worry about the remote code execution part of your malware. Uh, that's what I think a lot of people would agree is the, is the hard part, so to speak, of making things work. But you focus on do it the way I tell you to do it, and you can run this software. It's purchasable you know, somewhere on the internet. He actually talks about one group called Object, which is a, a Russian group that designs these custom-made malware construction kits for people. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting because in the white paper he talks about how some of these threat actors actually give guidelines for how they want their customers to operate. So it's not your typical type of hackers who develop malware and just try to do quick smashing grabs. They're, they're very methodical about their approach to make sure that they're not drawing unnecessary attention to themselves. Because, you know, if you're going to get caught with it, then ultimately it's going to go back to them. So they, they try to work with their customers to try to stay as low-key as possible. And that's a really good point. It's not just the lone gun attacker that's after your environment. There's a whole criminal ecosphere of multiple players doing their own little part, and there's been a lot of papers on this of it matches the whole organized crime, mafia-type setups. You've got people that deliver the malware. You've got people that create the malware. You've got people that launder the money. You've got these multiple working parts, and what you're seeing here is almost an outsourcing of part of that. You know, you've got the cybercrime groups, they're like, oh, we need this capability, we'll outsource that over to this tool and buy it off of our buddies. You get these almost uh, distributor business associate relationships going in these criminal enterprises. It's really scary. My favorite pieces of malware that are coming out of these criminal organizations that are, to me, the funniest um, that we've seen. Uh, some examples of are the pieces of malware that will infect a computer and then patch the way that they infected it to prevent other pieces of malware from taking hold. Absolutely. So so not only are these malware designers trying to create new ways of infecting you, but they're also trying to create ways of preventing their competition from infecting you. And it's all about just good business. Yeah. You know, how long before these malware authors become antivirus companies? <laughs> that actually, we had a case, it's been years ago now, but literally we, we were brought in to investigate where someone had gotten compromised with a Trojan, and looking through the logs, we found that the criminal had to patch, for stability reasons, the server that he had 
compromised. Like he had applied patches to make the server work better so that he had a better connection to go through the rest of the network. And <laughs> Dave and I are just looking at each other like, how? How do people miss this stuff? But we're in kind of a weird niche where we know what to look for and you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. When you're just trying to get your help desk tickets down every day, you miss kind of that bigger picture sometimes. Yeah, well, yeah. They weren't looking at their about section for their software. <laughs> How do we go from version 3 to 5? Well, you know, they may miss that because they may assume, like somebody who's not knowledgeable in that area may just assume that they have like auto updates running. Like, oh, oh, it's being patched for us. It's good, guys. We're, the we're users fantastic. should have that. Did you do that one, Jenkins? No, I thought you did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it must have been must have been automated. Right on. Well, it's done. Cool. We don't have to do that now. That's that's not the way to do it at all. <laughs> so we will put this white paper for you to read um, up on our website in our white paper section, and we will also put it in our show notes. Uh, I'll tell you, reading through this article, it actually I, I find it surprising personally that you know people are out there. Buying it, you know, you know, Ben, as you put, kind of outsourcing this to other companies. Right now, you could go into, you know, Metasploit and create these Word documents, create these files that can do the same thing. Granted, there's, I mean, there's signatures and stuff out there for those, but it's not a hard, a hard thing to do. You're, you're absolutely right. But at the end of the day, it's a business. You know, how much time do you spend working on creating your own, you know, we, we still call it fully undetectable uh, malware, or do you just, you know, pay Bob? And so, yeah, we're, we're seeing more and more of this. And you know, like you said, the capabilities out there for just about anybody to do this, and really, like you're saying with Metasploit, 30 minutes watching some YouTube training, my 10-year-old can do this as well. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, who's got the time? I've got 30 minutes. <laughs> you know what else is out there for people to, to use and uh, abuse? Big old doors that are just left open for them that users are putting into their own networks. Ooh. What we're talking about here specifically is uh, internet-connected baby monitors that are really easy to hack. Why don't you tell us about that, Michael? Yep, the Internet of Things just keeps getting larger. Yeah, the article we're talking about is watch out new parents, internet-connected baby monitors are easy to hack, and it's true. So over the last few years, you know, hackers have been going forward and targeting basically anything internet-connected. Um, but in this case, they're looking at baby monitors as well. You've heard stories of you know people getting into a baby monitor and screaming at the toddlers or cursing at the parents, um, using them as spy cams, people's, you know pictures and images going out to the world or on websites that you know that are out there um, without their knowledge um, and that's because I mean these these items are not safe one hacker this past year actually put out a, you know live feeds from thousands of baby monitors on a site and entitled it big brother is watching you you know the fact that that stuff's even out there that you're putting that out there is just crazy to me uh, it's really no different from um, showdown really that's what I was going to bring up. I, yeah. When you guys sent me this story to, to review, I kind of went, well, duh. 
because it's been talked about so many times that people just plug these things into their network, they have no idea what they're doing because they want the convenience. And something like Shodan, which is just an amazing tool, if you're not familiar with it, I highly recommend looking through uh, some of the documentation. There's a, a little bit of, of voyeurism that goes into browsing Shodan and going, oh, what can I look at today? Because there's just so much out there that people don't know they have connected, but Shodan knows. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, that being said, the fact that it's been talked about a lot, you have Shodan out there, you would think that the people that are making these baby monitors would actually have some kind of security added to them. But the problem is, is that they're actually, I mean, they, there might be something out there, but it's extremely easy to get around it. There was a security researcher, Mark um, Stanislav of, of Rapid7, said that, you know, out of the nine cameras that are out, you know, the, the top cameras that are out there, eight got an F and one got a D- minus in security. That's horrible. Every single camera had one hidden account that a consumer can't change because that it's hard-coded in or it's just not easily accessible. Um, and you know those are those are there for you know admin or support, but once one account is out there for a certain device, you're able to access it on all of those devices. It brings up a good point about passwords and default accounts, and it's one of those things that other industries have had to learn over and over again. I'm thinking like telecommunications and and you know my old uh, telecom provider. When I asked him, you know, are you guys changing? default passwords on my PBX systems, and I was asking this when PCI was just kind of getting started, they were like, default what now? And I, and I asked them, you know, what are you using to log on to my system? So they're like, oh, we have this account. No, <laughs> you cannot use just a default. You change that. You change it now. And we've had to learn that in these different siloed industries, it feels like. You know, banking industry has been dealing with this for years. Hospital uh, healthcare has been dealing with this for years, but these new convenient, awesome devices that lets you make sure that Junior is sleeping well while you're finishing up on NCIS re reruns, it's a great convenience, but they're put out there with none of this background security, building infrastructure, uh, any of these questions being asked during the design process. And so they're having to learn and play catch up, hopefully someday, to the rest of the world about, yeah, don't use default, don't use hard-coded uh, accounts like this. Yeah, hopefully they're doing it now instead of later. And, and for me personally, it's Mr. Robot, not NCIS. I'm just gonna... <laughs> Everybody has their own. <laughs> Something users can do to protect themselves from this is, you know, switch over to the old-school baby monitors. You know, if you really have to have a, a camera-based baby monitor, just sw switch over to the old ones where they, they use, you know, the, the radio... Um, transmission to communicate between the receiver and the, the transmitter. Um, or if you know how to use your firewall at all, you know, deny anybody from being able to, to SSH in to your network. Any SSH from external to internal just drop. If you're just using that baby monitor to sit on your couch and pop up your Android device and check, that's not going to stop you whatsoever from being able to do that. But it will stop outsiders from being able to do that. Well, that's a good, or a, a good point you raised that I, I, I'm glad you talked about it. What is, where's the honest of behavior? Is it that people need to design 
more hardened equipment, or do users need to be better about handling their own network environment? You know, my parents now live in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, and they even have you know a home Wi-Fi, a start, a smart TV, uh, you know, two different computers, their mobile phones, and we're getting to this point where every home user has what used to be called a medium-sized business amount of technology 10 years ago. And so do we need to focus more on educating the consumers or do we need to kind of do the big brother government approach of, okay, you guys are not picking up on this, so we're going to legally require the people that are supplying this equipment, like cars, to tighten security? And it's one of those questions I don't think there's a really good answer yet, and I don't know if there ever will be, but it definitely needs to be talked about outside of our echo chamber because hackers have been talking about that kind of crap for years, but you know, my parents, until they hear it from me, don't think about those things. <laughs> I, I know for me, um, you know, as the computer nerd of the family, and, and I say that, you know, as the computer nerd of the family. Um, oh, so that means so that means you install basic antivirus on everybody's computers. <laughs> you know, I have, I have done that. My family tech support rates are higher than my I've never met you before family <laughs> tech support rates. And then the, oh, did you try and do this yourself first? Oh, we're going to charge a premium to help you fix your network now. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so being that, I, I'm sure we all feel that as, as, as guys in this industry and, and understanding at least a certain level of security when it comes to stuff, I feel like the user needs to be educated. They need to have an understanding of what's going on so that they can at least go through and set normal stuff, you know, normal settings of, oh, I don't want this turned on or, oh, I need this turned on and this is how you do it. But at the same time, the companies... I feel, and the developers of software are responsible for what they're putting out. If they're not looking at it as a, you know, the consumer's interest in mind as well. I mean, obviously, as a, as a company, you're you're looking at the money and the product that you can create. But as a as a consumer using that, if it's not safe, then it's not something you should be using. So I feel like the company should be looking at a way to create the best product they can while at the same time keeping their customers you know information safe as well and then the consumer has to know how to properly use that equipment to keep them safe uh, I like how you said that and if I can delve into a, a yet another Dave story which I tell way too many stories about my boss Dave Cronister he did some research last year about these uh, network uh, FTP systems where like it's a wireless router, you plug a USB into it, and it gives you the option of sharing your files. Well, what the vendor was doing by default is they would create an anonymous FTP system and open it to the world, and all you know as the consumer is you clicked a button that said share files. And when the vendors were confronted with it, you know, the Asus router was the first one that uh, some other guy, you know, he talked to them for eight months before he ever released the research. They ended up saying, well, the information's there, and we're just providing a service. They considered it a feature rather than a 
security concern that people are clicking a button that says share files and getting an anonymous FTP system. Wow. Yeah, it's scary. I want vendors to be a little bit concerned, but I also am not a betting man or a an optimist by any stretch of the imagination that they will be. <laughs> yeah, the, the vendor's not going to be concerned with it until they have to be concerned with it. There's a, a, a list of baby monitors that were tested in this research, and um, we will put that up in our show notes as well. You know, as it goes to show, it's not just baby monitors. You know, there's yeah. if you can click a button and you're sharing your you know Word files, Excel documents, music, whatever to the world, there's a problem there. And especially if you don't know it, you're like, oh, I can just I can get on my server and I'm, you know, I can access my files from anywhere. This is awesome. Yeah, but so can everybody else. We uh, talk about the security versus convenience line. Uh, in some of our classes where if you want to have that awesome convenience of being able to watch your house, your car, your baby, what have you, over the Internet, that's great. But understand you're moving away from that uh, more hardened, uh, more uh, well-thought-out, well-provided, well-provisioned security. And you just have to pick as a person, as a business owner, as the IT security guy, where on that line is acceptable for you to fall. Somewhere closer to security, somewhere closer to convenience. At the end of the day, it's your risk decision. You gotta perform that, that risk equation to determine how much risk you're willing to take on your own network. You know, also understand what you're putting on there and don't put it on there unless you are willing to take the proper steps um, to protect yourself. Because if you don't, then you're just screwing your yourself and you're screwing the uh, people on your network. Because you know it's not it's not always just one user that's going to be affected on this network. You know it's going to be every single user on that network that's going to be affected by it. Educate yourself. Educate your friends. <laughs> educate the your family. People that are listening to this podcast are going to be the people that are already educated or know where to look. Educate everybody else. I tried to have a conversation with a gentleman on an airplane one time because he pulled up his Apple device, he started logging on to every friggin' site, and he pulls up an Excel spreadsheet, passwords. And I'm sitting kind of behind and to the left in the exit row, and I can see all his accounts, all his passwords, everything. And I'm like, you, the company you just went to on that website just got breached. Do you not know this? And I kind of just, you know, tapped the gentleman. Hi, you don't know me. I'm an ethical hacker. Blah blah blah. Oh yeah, it is an oxymoron. Ha ha ha. And you know, tried to educate the guy. And at the end of the day, he still was just like, yeah, I don't care. So the best thing we can do as researchers and hackers and people that do care is at least spread the word about these things are scary. And if you're going to use them, that's fine. But be mindful of what you're doing. Right on. Yeah, know how to use them. Yeah. It's funny, every time we go out, I have to remind my family, hey, turn off your Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, something as simple as that on your phone. Turn off your Wi-Fi. Are we at home? Then turn it off. You don't need free Wi-Fi. We pay for data on our cell phone plan. Turn off your Wi-Fi. You don't need free Wi-Fi in the mall. You don't need it at Starbucks or Panera or wherever. You don't need it. You're, you're next to a window. You have cellular data coming through right now. Use that instead. B 
because you never know what's you know who's sitting there with their laptop and what they're running. You just don't. I mean, it, it could be, you know, yeah, they could just be somebody working on the, you know, an Excel spreadsheet or you know some work stuff. But at the same time, it could be somebody who's acting as, you know, an access point and stealing your information. All right. On those notes, <laughs> got a little off topic there. Yeah. Time to wrap this up. This week we covered new malware breaks and penetrable corporate defense. From that, we determined that there is no silver bullet. Defense in depth is going to be your your strongest thing. New version of the Carbonac banking malware is out there. For home users, you really don't have to worry about this because this is a targeted malware. And it's you know going out there hitting financial institutions. The two file types we mentioned, you know, check for those plugins. Microsoft Word Intruder revealed inside a malware construction kit. It's a new day and age. Even easier to get into malware construction now. Watch out new parents. Internet connected baby monitors are easy to hack. And from there we determined know what you're putting on your network and educate people who don't know how to properly secure their network. And if you're listening to this and you don't know how to properly secure your network with these devices on there, do research and uh, educate yourself to properly secure your network. I was your host this week, Raymond Evans, and he was my fantastic co-host. Michael Fairweather. And he was our guest. Ben Miller. Thank you all. Stay safe. Keep your network safe. And have a week. Have a week.